Hello, I'm Brandon Mercer. And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, March 10th, 2016, and this is episode 17 of Garbage. All right, on this week's episode, we have a lot of topics to hit, um, many, many small things we want to cover. A lot of OpenBSD things have happened this week. There's a, a lot of feedback that we got from you guys, so thank you for that. And JCS, you have some items that you wanted to review this week, so let's get started. Yeah, so uh, first up in OpenBSD news is the uh, death of the Vax platform. Uh, it's been ripped out of the uh, source tree. Yeah, that's right. The um, 5.9 will be the last release for Vax. There will be no Vax support in OpenBSD 6.0. And uh, rumor has it that Spark will be uh, next on the chopping block. Yeah, the there were uh, discussions about Spark being... Uh, removed as well. And I think it's uh, one of those things where uh, the people who uh, put in this labor and did all this work, um, I, I almost called it a labor of love, but it's not really a labor of love. It's becoming a labor of love. And I think um, they are sad to see it go and at the same time realize that um, you know it's time to move on from that. Um, the discussion was basically that uh, these platforms... You know, while they did have value, um, some of them have deficiencies. Uh, uh, Vax, for one, didn't have uh, support for um, shared objects. And uh, it was just, you know, no, no resources to uh, keep working on those platforms. And so it was uh, providing little benefit, so it's time to uh, put them on the chopping block. Yep, and uh, I guess in open uh, traditional OpenBSD fashion, it's kind of a a uh, fully encompassing uh, change to rip this platform out. So there's been changes in uh, the ports tree, um, like since Vax is the last platform that didn't support shared libraries, um, like all of the uh, like pfrag uh, mm -hmm. dot shared files in the ports tree can go away and. Um, all of the little hacks that were in uh, various ports for Vax um, have already been ripped out. Yep. And if you guys do have Vax um, and you want to keep running it, the best place to do uh, to get the code is in the attic. I mean, the code will still be in CVS in the attic. You can go and get it and uh, build whatever you want to build and keep maintaining it, um, but it's not something that the project will support. So, yeah, that's basically how that is going to work. Yeah, so there was um, a little discussion this week about um, some X11 forwarding. And um, in the SSH config, this is something that um, we have disabled by default. And there's some other OpenSSH implementations that leave this on. Um, it's probably worth mentioning and throwing out there now that there were uh, some commits made um, to address an issue with X11 forwarding. So keep a keep an eye out for that and um, if you are using x11 forwarding it'd probably be a good time to CVS up and build some things or disable x11 forwarding until you get these things in place um, my understanding is is that there was some uh, communications happening to um, the auth server that shouldn't have been happening but I don't really know too many details about it JCS do you know anything more about it yeah, it's basically um, the way that it calls XAuth. Um, you could pass a, a particularly formatted um, 
piece of data that had like semicolons or new lines in it um, that would allow uh, you to run other commands other than xauth. Um, and so there was like some discussion on uh, lobsters. Somebody was asking like, well, what difference does it make? You're logging into the machine anyway. Why right. couldn't you just run those commands anyway? Um, and in most cases, that's true. But um, the uh, few instances where you SSH into a machine and you aren't actually running a shell, um, like for one thing, the non CVS servers for OpenBSD, and if you use uh, Git over SSH, um, those are probably just running a like forced command when you SSH in instead of running a shell. Um, and so if those servers had uh, enabled X11 forwarding, which as you said is off by default, um, you could uh, run something bad. Um, but X11 forwarding has been off by default uh, because of a issue a long time ago in uh, the X11 forwarding. So I don't really know who would turn that on? Well, um, we won't uh, drop names, huh? <laughs> we won't talk about big companies that do that by default. Yeah, I mean, uh, so OpenBSD uh, disables it by default. So OpenSSH, the like distribution, disables it by default. Mm -hmm. But there is a uh, couple large um, uh, Linux distributions that, for some reason, enable it. Yep, um, by default. Yep. By default. <laughs> So, yeah, and uh, so yeah, that's why it's always best to run the OpenBSD version of uh, OpenSSH and not something that someone else decided to spin off for you. So, do you want to talk about um, some changes that you sent into um, uh, to Tech um, about disabling the uh, stipple for XDM? Yeah, so this was um, I don't know what made me think of this, but uh, when you start X. It has that default um, black and white, very tiny, uh, basically checkerboard on the stipple. And then uh, it stays that way until you run like X set root or something to change the background to a color or a, or a pattern or whatever, or an image. Um, and it's bothered me for a long time that we still do that. So like in my um, like XDM X setup file, I always do like X set root dash uh, solid black yep. so that at the XDM login screen it uh, goes from the stipple to black and then you can log in and do whatever um, so I thought like well surely like other like operating systems aren't doing that too so where have they changed it and anyway so in reading this I find out that um, xorg has actually changed that uh, stipple thing to be off by default a long time ago <laughs> yeah. and there was um they changed it so that it uh just paints the screen black by default and then if you start x with the dash retro flag um it'll still do the stipple mm -hmm. and so when that version of the x server got merged into um the xenocara tree uh whoever did the importing i guess uh actually disabled that and then changed it so that it was the reverse. So by default, it still does the stipple. And then if you pass it the dash retard flag, um, <laughs> it would still, it would paint it black, which is like not documented anywhere. And it's, it's kind of, uh, immature, I guess, to name it that anyway. But, right. um, anyway, so I was like, well, that's dumb. Like we should at least, you know, we could be like everybody else and just paint a black screen. So I may email tech and basically complained about it and supplied a, a diff that would revert it 
and mm. give us a black background by default to be like everybody else. And then it would still have the dash um, retro flag if you still wanted the stipple. And of course, uh, I think the majority of the people were in favor of it, saying that they hate the old stipple pattern and that it looks really old and clunky and there's not really a good reason to do it anymore. Right. But Theo and uh, Mark Tennis disagreed and think that it's a good idea because it provides some sort of debugging uh, functionality because you can tell when X actually starts and draws the stipple pattern instead of just showing you a black screen, which could be like... Um, Your monitor going blank or something. Yeah, which I can see the benefit in that, but it's like if you're having a problem, then you can turn it on, like turn on the, the dash retro flag or whatever, and then fix your problem. But like, how often are you having a problem that you need to do that? And then for everybody else that's never had a problem, like the Intel DRM stuff and all that, it just works. Right. Like, why does everybody need to be subject subjected to that? Yeah, I I honestly think it looks terrible, and I have to uh, agree with the X set root. Give it a background color, black or whatever. Um, you know, there were some other suggestions thrown out too of changing the color and all that kind of stuff, but that's not really the point. The uh, what was the name of the flag in there? Like party, like it's 1989 or something like that. Yeah, that's actually like the variable name um, <laughs> that's inside of the X server that that uh, is toggled when you do dash retro or in our case dash retard. Yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, I'd like to see it go. Um, I use XDM uh, because I'm a bad person and. Uh, but anyway, XDM has the same thing. I just wish that it would have a plain black uh, black background. Yeah, so if you uh, are in favor of having a black background, you should reply to the tech mailing list to uh, voice your support so that I can hopefully win this argument against yeah. Theo and uh, get this committed. Yep. Well, good. Are there any other exciting things to talk about um, happening in OpenBSD this week? Um... We forgot clear until the end of the episode last week. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so. But maybe something else will come up by the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. All right, so do you want to talk about um, all the emails that we got this week? Um, it turns out that you guys are really, really passionate about um, browser configuration and securing <laughs> your browser, which was yes. like, I mean, we got inundated with email, which is awesome. Um, a lot of, they kind of fall into two categories. One was like, um, here's how you solve it if you need to do development and, uh, use the application at the same time. So a lot of great suggestions, uh, along those lines. Um, and then there were some other things uh, thrown in there of, um, people, uh, suggesting their setups and just a, I mean, a ton of great feedback about all that. And, um, I was really kind of, it was interesting to read all those emails, like the great lengths that people go through to uh, run their browser in a fashion that they feel more comfortable with, whether mm -hmm. it's a browsing experience or um, doing development or feeling safer on the web. And uh, yeah, I mean, people put in a lot of effort to that. So thank you for all that feedback. Um, do you want to talk about a couple of these um, emails that we got from folks? Yeah, so um, one that uh, I've seen before that um, some people do is they basically SSH into their own machine and mm -hmm. use X11 forwarding, um, that feature that we just talked about that had the vulnerability in it that's disabled by default. Um, <laughs> if you turn that on and then you SSH into your own machine as a like non-privileged user that is not you, 
and then you run Firefox that way, and then it forwards over localhost to your display. Mm-hmm. Um, so this prevents uh, any bugs in Firefox from being able to read like your SSH key or anything in your um, in your you know home directory, but would obviously still give them like remote code execution, I guess, as an yep. unprivileged user. Yep. So there's that one. Uh, there was also, well, let me just see who uh, sent that it to credit them. Yes, uh, Brett uh, Mahar, Mar, uh, Mayor, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Brett. Um, so thanks, Brett. Uh, somebody else wrote in with, uh, let's see, this was Clint um, Packle, P-A-C-H-L, um, wrote in to say that he, um, this was more of like the, uh, running different profiles within Firefox. Right. So when you start up Firefox, if you have multiple profiles configured, it will prompt you to to see which one you want to start with. And then you can like switch to another one that it has like no script installed or something like that. So you can basically get like a configurable level of security based on what you're doing. So you could do that. That's kind of like running the Tor browser, um, which is also available for OpenBSD. Um, because it has a bunch of like config settings changed by default, and it has some add-ons installed, and obviously it proxies everything through Tor. Um, but my problem is that like I'll kind of wander into doing something and be like, "Oh crap! I should have been doing this like on the other profile or through Tor or something like that." Yeah. So if it's something that I have to like keep switching between, um, I'm gonna keep forgetting to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that really gives the basic idea of a lot of uh, what the browser configuration was, really. Yeah. So, I mean, these are some uh, options that you can do. Uh, it's kind of a lot of work to uh, get this stuff set up and, like, keep it, keeping it maintained and all that. And, like, with the SSH thing, you have to enable a feature that is not enabled by default. So it's available. I wish it were a lot easier and that... Um, the browsers had kind of the stuff built into them that made them more secure. Yeah, it doesn't make sense that you you get a, a browser by default and you have to go through um, arguably hours and hours of configuration and, dis- and discovery and all that kind of stuff to understand what you need and what you're up against um, just to be able to go on the web. That seems silly to me. And, um, you know, Firefox and, and Chrome... They're very widely used, and a lot of effort goes into them, but I feel like there's still so much more that we're missing from the browser experience that isn't, you know, well, what Chrome does it use, and what, um, you know, does it have tabs, and does it do this search engine, and all this kind of stuff that, you know, I mean, these people spend a lot of time in, you know. Um, they're, they're talking about building in new web features. They aren't um, really thinking about the user experience and improving the web experience so that we don't have to go through these great lengths. I think that's kind of silly. We shouldn't need to do that. Yeah, it's kind of like the um, the Cubes OS approach, where yeah. you basically just segment everything off from one another, because you kind of have to assume that it's a uh, an insecure blob of code. Right. So rather than like dig in there and try and fix it properly, you just quarantine it off. And it makes sense. I mean, it, I yeah. mean, you, I mean, you're sitting out there on the web. I mean, that is literally, you know, you're going through a firewall or proxying. But, I mean, you, you're pretty exposed when it comes to the the internet being right there on your machine. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like 
yeah, you can segment it off so that it can't do anything else to your machine. But like how much of what you're doing on your machine is all web browsing and right. how much of that like secure stuff and private stuff are you storing or manipulating inside that web browser that even though it's segmented from the rest of your machine, it's still able to muck with all that web browsing that you're doing. Right. It's kind of like uh, having a multi-user machine when you're the only user on it. It's like, <laughs> yeah, nothing needs root to do a lot of damage because it can just run as you because you're the only user that's doing anything anyway. Yeah, you've got all the interesting data. And um, so I think that's why um, one of these emails was talking about using um, jails and SSH, right? X-forwarding and jails was the thing. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that um, I'm looking forward to is um, setting up a pledge to have like very granular limitations on file access. So... Mm -hmm. You say what it has access to, and it gets access to nothing else. So you can still share your uh, LOL cat pictures, but no SSH keys and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. those would be a good step forward here in the near future. Yep. Um, so hopefully that uh, that file argument for pledge will be uh, all ready to go by 6.0. Yeah. All right. What else do we have? Um, yeah, somebody else um, sent an e email asking about um, the Raspberry Pi and the binary blobs and uh, what that situation is. And um, so right now the Raspberry Pi 3 is out, and we were talking about that a couple episodes ago. And um, really the the binary that's executing on there is... Um, is really something like it's not a not a big worry for us. It's not something that we're loading into the kernel or you know something crazy like that. It's uh, more analogous to like um, you have a wireless card and you have some firmware or whatever that's redistributed. Um, this happens. This binary um, actually executes even before the boot blocks run, and it's basically um, something that turns on. Um, and looks for, you know, your SD card or your storage device, and it um, validates the uh, partition scheme and validates that um, you have a bootable, um, like a first stage bootloader there and the second stage and all that kind of stuff. So the binary blob isn't really a, a binary blob as such. Um, it's it's something a little bit different. I mean, that's a, it's a little bit less intrusive than saying like a binary blob, but... Um, we actually, the, the folks that put together the Raspberry Pis, they actually have documentation from Broadcom too, that if, if we wanted to rewrite this piece of binary, um, we could, we have the documentation to do it. But from my understanding is, is it, it's not really a problem. It doesn't really create a problem. And, uh, it'd be an undertaking that just doesn't really warrant our time or our efforts right now from, uh, all the other things that we have to do with ARM right now, it's uh, probably the least of our worries. Wasn't there something with uh, the HDMI that was causing some sort of licensing problem that Theo was saying that's why there's no Raspberry Pi port or that there hasn't been for a long time? I thought it was something related to the HDMI driver or some kind of binary-only thing. Maybe that's the same thing. I think it's been resolved. Um, yeah, they because they also um, released the like the GPU documentation and all that stuff. So hmm. Broadcom has opened the book on this. Early on, that wasn't the case. Okay. Um, and 
I mean, I think they have sold millions and millions and millions of these things. Um, I, there was some staggering number that I remember. They're like, our, um, the Raspberry Pi 3, we're already batch ordering like 3 million devices or something absurd like that. Maybe it was a million, maybe, I don't know. Um, so they're selling a lot of these, enough of these that Broadcom is finally like, okay, you have enough, um, say and sway in this kind of thing. And it's been what we're on our third or fourth revision now that they're, mm-hmm. you know, okay with releasing documentation. So, uh, you can get the documentation without a non-disclosure, um, is also my understanding. I don't really follow them too closely, but I did, um, order the Raspberry Pi 3 today so that, um, I could, you know, get some, hacked up code and start working on ARM again. Uh, at least I'll have a machine that I can run my ARM stuff on again, which is kind of exciting. Yeah. Um, in a slightly tangential topic, um, my APU2, when I build Go on that, it takes like 5 minutes, 45 seconds in that neighborhood, depending on the day. And um, I was like, man, this feels kind of slow to me. Well, then I saw something Dave Cheney posted. He's one of the... Um, the Golang developers, and uh, he was he loves ARM hardware, and he was saying like some things that they found in their um, floating point detection for ARM that they're like, oh man, this is this is terrible. And I think he said something to the effect of, uh, this is like handing your friend a defibrillator while you're having, or you're in defib and having him punch you in the chest or something like that. It was like a horrible way to do it. But anyway. Um, so they made all these improvements to ARM, and they got a hold of some Raspberry Pis and 3s, and they were going to build all this stuff. And he's like, um, go builds on the ARM in just over four minutes. And I was like, wait a second. It peaked out at five watts of power. It built the entire Go tool chain in just over four minutes. And I'm looking at my APU2 where uh, it's running 12 watts of power, maybe a little bit more than that, just for you know single Ethernet device. And, um, it takes almost six minutes between five and six minutes to build Go. And I was kind of disappointed with that <laughs> because I have a solid state disk in there and the Raspberry Pi has like, you know, what does it have? Like flash storage. So, um, anyway, maybe the Raspberry Pi 3 will be interesting and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, kind of a sidebar about Go and ARM and all that kind of stuff. All right. We had someone uh, write in asking about uh, VMM and the networking aspect of it, and obviously the show isn't really about like, hey, how do I do this? But um, talking about um, VMM and OpenBSD right now and talking about the networking of it, um, it's changing. So VMM, the tools, the interface that you're going to experience as an end user are in in flux right now. There's things that are being uh, ironed out. There's things that have been improved. Um, and some questions kind of came up about, hey, I set up a, a virtual machine, but how do I, um, you know, set up networking for it? And really, um, what you do is you configure the tap devices. Um, and there's a, uh, an article that uh, one of the other OpenBSD developers wrote, um, Aaron Bieber, and I guess we'll just kind of send a link to that that'll walk you through the details of it. But um, you know, you do the same thing you would for a normal Ethernet device. You enable IP forwarding, um, you set up the tap device, and set up some rules in PF so that you can NAT to and from that particular tap device to your virtual machine. 
and you can configure it to use DHCP and all that kind of stuff too if you want to do that. But but then um, after that, you really just set it up like a normal um, machine would. You have a network device that shows up in there, and you can configure it however you want to. So um, we'll send a link to that article um, in the show notes so that you guys can find that. Um, but just know that the networking is going to improve a little bit. So is um, the interface to those tools. So um, rest assured, it'll be like everything else is in OpenBSD. It'll it'll make sense. It'll be easy, and there won't be a lot of knobs for people to turn and goof up and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, that was easy. <laughs> so you had... Um, a few devices that you were going to talk about. You had um, some hardware devices you wanted to talk a little bit about? Yeah, I figured uh, I'd do a gadget review on this gadget show um, <laughs> or technology show, I guess. Um, I got the new Apple TV mm-hmm. to replace my Amazon Fire TV, which replaced my Mac Mini that was hooked up to my TV. <laughs> so I just thought I would uh, talk about this uh progression that I've gone through. So I, I started with a Mac mini that was just plugged into my TV over HDMI and it ran, um, XBMC to, uh, like watch TV shows and movies and stuff that I, um, legally download, I guess I will <laughs> say. Um, and I had like a, uh, Logitech Harmony remote set up to, um, basically like send commands to the Mac mini so that right. I could operate the like GUI of XBMC with the remote and it all kind of worked okay. There were um, kind of some issues uh, once in a while and I'd have, to, I'd have to like go plug in a keyboard and like fix stuff once in a while and all that. So the Amazon Fire TV um, box came out. It was only like a hundred bucks, I think. Um, so I got that to replace um, the Mac mini uh, which I used for something else. And then the, the Amazon Fire TV basically just runs uh, Android or Am- mm-hmm. uh, Amazon's version of Android. Yeah. And then um, you get like the little remote with it that uh, operates over Bluetooth. And then the uh, Logitech Harmony also had support for like um, pretending to be that remote. So that worked better than what I had, but uh, Amazon keeps messing with the uh, Amazon fire thing. They keep like changing the layout of the home screen and like putting ads on it and all this other crap. And the, um, like third party apps that are available are not, um, terribly great, I guess, Mm -hmm. because it doesn't, uh, it'll run like a standard uh, Android app. Um, but it, you can only like install apps through the, that are in the Amazon app store, which there are of, there's like practically none. Yeah. So you can sideload an APK that um, if you want to install it on there. So I did that to get XBMC running on the Amazon Fire. But uh, if you install a third-party app like that, it doesn't show up on the home screen. So you either have to like go deep into the settings and like you know manage applications and then find the app and then click on it and click like launch app and do all that stuff. Or there was like a a weird um, like hack you could install where you install an app from the Amazon app store and that basically acts as the icon. And then you install, um, something called like llama or something like that. It's basically like tasker where it like hooks into a whole bunch of things. And then you would write a rule that like anytime this 
this particular third-party app is launched to launch XBMC instead. So like from the Amazon Fire home screen, you could navigate around and find this third-party app. And then as soon as you launched it, it would like flash that screen, but then also flash like the XBMC launch screen. Right. So it was this whole like kind of hacky thing and Amazon kept changing it. So I figured I would try out the uh, Apple TV. So I got one of those the other day. And um, it seems, I don't know, nicer than the Amazon Fire. Um, it seems faster. And the new Apple TV, the Generation 4, I guess it is, supports like third-party apps from an app store. So, you know, I installed like the Netflix app and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the the remote that comes with the Apple TV is probably the the worst thing about it. I would have expected that to be the the good part coming from Apple. Well, it's nice because like it has like a touch uh, portion on it, so it's just like they're like you know a touchpad or a mouse, like their new mice, where you can um, glide your finger over it and it interprets like gestures and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the that's also the worst part about it because at least the way that I watch TV, like if you're watching like television that has commercials and there's like a commercial on that comes on that's too loud or like you're watching a movie and the sound engineering sucks and you have to like keep changing the volume depending on who's talking you like at least when i watch tv like i have the remote either like in my hand or like sitting on my chest or something while i'm sitting on the on the couch well the the remote has like this big touch part of it cuz like the entire top third of the remote is a touch part and if you just tap it with your finger, like not even tap, like click the button, but just touch it like accidentally, mm-hmm. the Apple TV interprets that as you trying to like seek or something. So it shows like it either pauses it or like um, shows the um, position scroll bar thing. So it's like super annoying. So you can't touch the remote. So you have to like leave it aside. And then when you want to like grab it, you accidentally touch it which does this whole thing all, all over again. So it's like <laughs> Apple invent like made this nice looking remote but didn't do any like actual uh usability testing cuz I'm confident that they would have made it uh they would have made a remote like they used to um like the old uh iMac remote that had like the magnet on the side or whatever where it's yep. like physical buttons because this touch thing sucks, especially um, for as large as the touch area is. Like, I guess it would be okay if it had like a big border around it that made it harder to accidentally touch. So anyway, so that's the like built-in remote. Um, the nice thing about it is that they've integrated HDMI um, CEC, so you can make it so if you uh, if you change the volume on the remote on the Apple remote, it can change the volume on your, your TV or your receiver. So that stuff all works nice. Um, but because of the accidental touch thing, I can't use the Apple remote. So I'm back to using my Logitech Harmony and the Logitech, uh, Harmony doesn't support the Bluetooth connection to the, um, to the Apple TV yet. So it can only do it over, um, infrared, which means (laughs) that you have to have the little Apple TV box, like outside of at least the way that my TV is set up. Like I have a media cabinet and all the, like my firewall and router and stuff are inside of a of a um cabinet mm-hmm. door so i don't have to see anything so until that is i guess until they upgrade the firmware or something to support the bluetooth connection um it has to use infrared which sucks <laughs> wow yeah so um i guess there's pros and cons to it um the third party apps since the apple tv just recently got third party apps with the 
fourth generation, there aren't um, like a huge number of apps yet. So obviously what's missing is the Amazon video streaming thing that the Amazon Fire had. So I can't watch, um, uh, what is it, Man in the High Castle that's on uh, Amazon now. And I think my wife said like there's no Bravo app or something like that, which I don't really care about. Now, does the um, so Amazon Fire TV? They have um, Amazon provides a service where you can um, view your digital copy of a movie that you own through your Amazon account. Do they do that through the um, Fire TV as well? Um, I am not sure. I never. Uh, I mean, I've never bought movies from Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um I'm I'm curious about that. I know like um we have a smart TV and when you sign into Amazon um I I forget how this works because I wasn't in charge for this. I was just along for the ride, but um you you buy a Disney movie or some other kind of movie and um if you bought it through your Amazon account or something like that, it shows up in your Amazon account and it's there in your drop down. You can just um you don't, you don't have to put the DVD or the Blu-ray in or whatever to go watch the movie. You just pull up the Amazon account, click on your movie, boom, and you're done. And I thought that that was a really, really nice feature, um, especially with kids, because you want to keep those DVDs and Blu-rays as far away from children as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I kind of wondered about that. Um, if it was a, a feature that was built into the new app, and, and we waited for this update to happen on uh, our other TV and you know it never came so i'm i'm still kind of we have to we're limited our first world problems are limited to the living room tv for being able to do our amazon viewing <laughs> i mean that was something that was common to me uh i set up a server you know put a bunch of hard drive space in it extract your dvds and blu-rays to the server and then watch them which is illegal so we'll edit that part out <laughs> but um but I mean, it, it's just so much easier to be able to pull from a, what are they called? The DLNA servers or whatever they are, the distributed, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, I mean, that's, it, it's, it's really kind of silly. Like we have these huge high definition videos and we're still putting them on discs, you know, and, um, a scratch is even worse. And I, I think in the Blu-rays than it is in the DVD or a CD was, um, as far as the, you know, the media not working and all that kind of stuff. And now they're putting like commercials in there and all this other kind of crap. So I don't know why they don't just, uh, let you stream your, your video or movie or whatever from a site anyway. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, the nice thing about the, the Apple TV is that it has the, um, the AirPlay or whatever. Right. So you can just, um, I was actually playing with it today. You can make your iPhone mirror its screen to the TV. Nice. So um, it shows, I mean, it's it's pretty like, it's not even really that lagged. Um, and especially like you can turn, if you are running an app or a game that supports um, landscape mode, it'll like fill up the whole screen of the TV. So it's pretty cool. And then uh, I was just thinking like if there were, if I wanted to watch um, an Am a show on Amazon or some other um, channel app that I don't have or that the Apple TV doesn't have yet, you can just load it up on your, uh, on my Mac and, uh, mirror. forward this, yeah, mirror the screen to the Apple TV. So I guess that's my review of the Apple TV is, um, buy it, uh, if you like it. <laughs> and if you don't, then don't buy it. Yeah. Um, 
the other thing is that the uh, Apple TV doesn't have the XBMC app, which I guess they're renamed to Cody or something, K-O-D-I, which yeah. is the worst name for an app. <laughs> um, so I can't run that anymore, so I'd have to switch to Plex, which um, I hate because the way that XBMC worked, you can just navigate like a... Um, like it could just act as its own client. So you can go in there and like mount an NFS share or a SMB share or whatever, and then just uh, navigate to a file and then play it. And it would just stream over the network and play it. But with Plex, it wants to like have a server running somewhere and manage your whole um, library. And then yeah. for some reason, like they insist on doing transcoding for everything because they won't oh. just like, send the file over the network to, you know, the Apple TV, which has a nice processor in it, which could probably do all that transcoding itself. So instead it's like trying to do transcoding on my Synology, uh, NAS, which I don't understand. Yeah. Um, so that kind of sucks. Yep. All these weird things for, uh, streaming media these days. It's, it, and it's not where it should be. I don't think. Uh, there was an article on lobsters today called um is caddy free and it was a link to a web page on the caddy web server uh weblog mm -hmm. i refuse to use the word blog <laughs> um and it was a notice from the developer saying that they have basically like a payment or donation um button on the download page now and basically talking about why they're asking for money and like uh, lots of companies are using this software and it saves you a lot of time and it has like the uh, let's encrypt support built into it so it's securing your site and all that and uh, if you could just throw them some money it would help them uh, keep writing the software which seems like a simple thing um, and in the comments I saw somebody comment asking uh, I wonder why they don't provide any hosted solutions or services like 99% of the other web servers do. Um, I guess uh, Nginx, they have like a commercial arm that has like a Nginx Pro or something like that that you can pay for, and huh. they have like a commercial support option or something. Um, so their comment and then goes, uh, that is shown to be incredibly viable and sustainable. Um, so I replied, with my OpenBSD developer hat on saying uh, many times when the OpenBSD group asks for donations, people come back with, why not offer some subscription or some tangible goods like a USB key or something like that, mm -hmm. um, since the CDs aren't going to be really relevant for too much longer. And the answer is that it's just more work to be done. Like that stuff doesn't appear out of nowhere. Like that would be another thing that Theo would have to coordinate or something like that. And we're not asking for money in exchange for more work, selling more goods. We're asking <laughs> yeah. for money in exchange for what we've already done, which right. is uh, writing everything. So the software we've written is the thing that you're getting, and you are already getting it. And we would like to be supported financially to continue doing that specific thing. Uh, offering hosted solutions and support contracts just means less developer time on the code that everyone uses and benefits from, um, and much more time... Uh, much more developer time spent on the hosted solutions and support contracts for the, only those few that gave the money. Right. So, yeah, I guess that's like a, a common thing is that um, free software developers are like, hey, can you throw me a few bucks for 
writing the software that you're benefiting from. And then people kind of turn around and be like, well, what do I get out of it if I give you some money? Uh, and right. it's like, well, I already gave you stuff. <laughs> I think the it's interesting to see uh, the, the shift in the cultures. I mean, um, 15 years ago, you had these open source projects and people were like, open source was a really strange thing. Uh, back then and you know trying to get it used in companies and all this kind of stuff oh no 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 you you i mean it was there's so much resistance to it and so little adoption and the people who did use it were well versed in whatever thing that they were trying to do and if they found it they would modify it and make it do what they wanted to do and now we have this huge 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 influx of uh people who want to build a website and they find 17,000 different versions of the same thing. They don't want to support any of the developers uh, who work on this stuff. They expect it now to be free rather than rejecting it and shunning it and trying to keep it out of their daily use. And um, and I think that that's probably why we're seeing this um, cultural shift. Um, now these people who re release the source code, people use it, and then it winds up taking their time rather than them just putting it up on their website and people downloading it. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it, it's not a lot of money. You, I'm looking at the uh, OpenBSD's uh, campaign for 2016, and it's talking like um, if a penny was donated for every PF or OpenSSH installed with a mainstream operating system or phone in the last year, they'd be at their goal. So, I mean, you know, two bucks, a penny, ten bucks or whatever – um, you know, would keep the project running. So rather than having, you know, one or two donors give big money, let everybody give a, a little bit that and, you know, contribute to the project. And uh, when you look at what you're getting for the for the money, it just doesn't even make sense. You, you couldn't hire a developer, you couldn't talk on the phone to a developer for 10 bucks. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I don't know, it, it, it is kind of interesting to see the cultural impact of open source and how to make it sustainable. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, I guess the opposite of Kickstarter. Like when someone puts up a Kickstarter project, like technically they are asking for people to support them so that they can get a bunch of money and then make that product and then sell it. But what ended up happening is that no one wants to just give them money so you give them money that's technically like a donation, but then your reward, quote unquote, for your donation is that you get one of these free products. So it's like, yeah, you're technically not buying the product because it doesn't exist yet, but there's right. kind of a like wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing that like, uh, I give you what happens to be the exact cost of the product and then you give me the product for free. Um, but I guess Kickstarter found out early and early on that just uh, having people advertise their product, their uh, projects and saying like, Hey, throw me a few bucks. If you want to see this come to market that like nobody wanted to do that. I mean, uh, what about if, if your product is software? Well, I guess, um, I mean, well, yeah, I guess. I mean, I like I've backed a software project on Kickstarter. Um and I guess the return for my donation was that I got a pre-release of the software. Mhm. Mm um this isn't 
open source software, which I guess is the uh, differentiating factor. Yeah. Um, because I've seen like people do like Patreon campaigns or something to basically um, support them while they work on open source software to give them like a wage uh, that they can live on while they're doing this. Um, but I think that's like uh, a much different thing. Yeah. I always feel good when somebody uh, sells some software and they're like, you buy this and you get free upgrades for life. And I just feel like I made out like a bandit. I'm like, here's your 150 bucks. This is a great piece of software. Have fun with the next 15 years of your life. You know, I do that for pushover, except I only get about $3.50. I should buy your product. Yeah, you should. <laughs> it'd be, it'd be a good that. deal. Like you were talking about with the support. Like, so if I sell a license of pushover for $3.50, which is like the profit that I get after Apple takes their cut, Apple mm-hmm. or Google, um, if I never hear from you for the rest of the time that you use the software, I will probably like make that $3.50. But as soon as you send me an email and say that you have a question and I have to like spend some time going back and forth answering your question, uh, that $3 and 50 cents is like not, it's like not worth the transaction anymore. Like I've given you way more than $3 and 50 cents worth of, you know, goods and services. Yeah. So these people that like, you know, I have to go back and forth for days and they have like all these, you know, questions and complaints and like sometimes i get people that haven't even bought the app yet and they're trying to like do a pre-sales question with me or something and it's like look man i've already (laughs) blown whatever money you're gonna pay on this for the rest of my life because i'm not gonna charge you for a subscription or uh for upgrades or anything like that so um unless you're buying like 100 licenses or something like there it just isn't really economically feasible for me to to keep going back and forth on this yeah and and those models are only sta- sustainable by um, new licenses. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you have to keep adding new users continually or the model breaks, right? right. Isn't that true? Yeah. And then, uh, so that's why, like, a lot of um, apps do, like, a, you know, version 2. They release it as a completely separate app. And then that way, everybody that bought the first version, you then have to buy the second version, Um to pay them again, which, right. you know, I understand, but so many users hate that. And I don't know if I want to do that really. Let's face it. I mean, people hate spending money. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I've had this uh, discussion with some other developers before about like, um, you know, like I try and, you know, you try and rationalize it with somebody and be like, how much did you spend on that cup of coffee this morning? Okay. Well, yep. I'm asking for less than that. And this is something that I've written that I've spent many, many hours, you know, uh, writing and supporting and upgrading and like every time a new version comes or a new OS comes out, I have to like test it and then add new features. And then there's like the server component that I have to do all this stuff. And, um, and arguably it takes much more technical expertise to be able to do that. than it does to make a cup of coffee. Right. But then like the people, you know, and then if I try and say that to someone, people come back and say, well, I know what that cup of coffee is going to taste like. I don't know what your app is like. So then I come back with, well, that's why my app has a seven day free trial. You can download yeah. it for free. If you don't like it after seven days, it just stops working. Uh, and if you like it, then you can pay me. Um, but I think the, the problem is that you can't really rationalize with people that way because no, they don't, they're not rational. Well, they don't see it as, um, as that they're paying for the value of 
like they're not paying for the the cost of they're not saying that your software is is not worth four dollars. What they're saying is that to them, it doesn't have four dollars worth of value. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter how much it cost me to make it and to support it every day. If they don't get, you know, five, four ninety nine worth of value out of it, or they don't think that they're going to, then they don't want to buy it. So I have to try and sell them on the notion that, well, you're going to get more than five dollars worth of value out of it, yeah. which is hard to do sometimes. Yeah. It, software is a really strange thing. Um, because before you, I mean, for anyone who isn't a developer to look at software development, you're like, I don't see the point. You know, you just don't understand. You're like, well, I see, uh, tens of thousands of people doing that. And you're going to tell me that I have to pay you to do it. Mm-hmm. Yes. In the same way, you're going to have to pay a nurse to give you CPR someday. Yeah. You know, I mean, like it's easy and there's tons of people who can do it, but it's still, um, a service that they're providing. And it's very strange to see the response to it. And it's almost trivialized. I almost feel like, um, software development is, um, viewed by a lot of people as like a car mechanic. Like, you know, you're a grease monkey. You go down there and you do some stuff just like all the other, you know, car mechanics do. And, uh, you do what I tell you. And I'm sure you're trying to rip me off and you're lying to me. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm going to pay too much, but, uh, that's what I'm going to have to do because I don't want to work on my own car. That's really what it feels like to me most of the time when I talk to people about software development. Well, I think it's even worse than that. Like this national like campaign to get young people into writing software. I don't really mm-hmm. understand this. Like president Obama was like going to write some code or something like that. <laughs> and that like every person in the country should know how to program. Like, I don't understand where this is coming from. Like it's, it's like you said, it's kind of trivializing it. Like it's not that everyone should know how to operate a computer. It's like, you're saying that everyone should know how to write, you know, a full piece of software and understand all the stuff underneath it. So you have all these like, um, you know, I'll teach you to write an app in 48 hours because it's so easy to make an app. Like all you need is a, is a simple idea and you can turn it into an app and then make millions of dollars. And it's like, that never happens. What are you talking about? No. Yeah. If it happened, um, I wouldn't be living here. I would be retired. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, excellent. Uh, that's all we have for this episode. So if there's anything you would like, if you'd like to hear us talk about in a future episode, you can reach us on Twitter at garbage FM, subscribe to our show's RSS feed on our website at garbage.fm or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Uh, Brandon, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter as well. Um, and I'm also on Google Plus from time to time, and I've been known to uh, rant and rave and post some interesting stuff on there. So um, real quick, thank you guys so much for writing in. That means a lot to us. Um, we're just sitting here talking about things that we enjoy, and it um, is great enjoy. to Or don't enjoy. We yeah. particularly hate. And so, again, hearing from you guys is absolutely fantastic. And uh we really do enjoy that aspect of the the show. That's really kind of a unique part of this because you aren't on air with us. <laughs> yeah, we don't have a, a call-in portion. Uh, maybe we should, but uh, it's nice to know that we're just not uh, shouting into a void. Yeah. Um, but I'm on the web at jcs.org and on Twitter at jcs.